Glad you're here today. Hey, um, if you're new, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. I had uh, somebody ask me earlier, like, hey, you're the, uh, the college pastor, right? I was like, yeah, well, no, um, not anymore, really. Who um, was the college pastor? My wife and I are getting ready to, uh, to leave, actually. So we're moving in, uh, in June, and we're going to go uh, plant a church in, uh, in Alabama. So if you felt like it was like, yeah, I was supposed to give money to a church planner. Like, uh, that's right, uh, you were. <laughs> His name is Chris, and he loves you very much. Um, so, yeah, we're transitioning out of college and into kind of full-blown church planner mode this semester. Uh, we're also having a kid. We just thought we'd do it all in one semester because we thought it through. Um, anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, today, uh, we're getting back into the book of Romans. So uh, we, we, we began this. Uh, series over the fall, uh, took a break for uh, Advent and some vision series stuff, and so today today we're back back into it for the first time this semester, um, and we're going to be in the first 11 verses of chapter 5, so if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, we'll be in the first 11 verses there, but before we jump into that text, um, I want to uh, refresh us on the first four chapters, right, on the off chance that we're a little rusty. Um, now, <clears throat> bear in mind that the book of Romans is generally regarded as the most sophisticated piece of theological literature ever written, right? So my five-minute recap of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 does not do justice to the wealth of knowledge that is available there, all right? So we are going to be painting in broad strokes this morning, uh, but in a weird way, that kind of speaks to the genius of the Bible, um, because uh, the Bible is simple enough that its basic concepts are being taught to your five-year-old right now. But also, it is rich enough that professional academic scholars have made entire careers out of studying just small portions of it. Okay? Um, so the first thing I want you to know about Romans is that it was written with you in mind. Okay? This is not for academic elites. This was written for fishermen and for farmers and for regular everyday citizens in ancient Rome. Okay? Um, so this is, this is for the encouragement of people like me and you. Okay? Uh, so while there are definitely deep theological and philosophical ideas in Romans, at the end of the day, this is for you. Uh, this was written for the expressed purpose of encouraging you with the gospel. All right, so don't, don't be intimidated. Don't be uncertain by this book. Um, in fact, I, I came across this passage uh, this week, um, and I just thought it was really cool. Um, in Second Peter, um, Peter, who, who was kind of the, the, the senior pastor of the early church, uh, in his letter, Second Peter, he writes uh, at kind of the end of it, he goes, yeah, that stuff Paul's writing about, it's kind of complicated. <laughs> so listen, the Bible thought it was important to include correspondence from an early leader of the church admitting that there are parts of Scripture that are difficult to wrap your mind around. Thank you, Peter. That's super helpful for me. Because it, it's, it's, this is deep, is it not? So I just be encouraged, family, like the Father is for you. He wants to be known. This is, this is encouraging, all right? So there's no need to be intimidated by this book. And, and I mean, it, the Bible in general 
and Romans in particular. All right. Um, we feel better about Romans now? We're back into it? We're good? Okay, good, because here's the reality. The first four chapters has absolutely nothing positive to say about your spiritual reality. Nothing. Not on an individual personal level. Not on a worldwide humanity level. Chapters 1 through 4 has absolutely nothing positive to say about your spiritual condition. I don't think Paul is being unnecessarily pessimistic or harsh. Um, it's just, this is just the world that we occupy. Right? You, you ever watch kids? Do kids naturally drift into generosity and kindness and service? Or is the basic instinct of every toddler in the history of man selfish? Anybody ever volunteer in the kids' area? Can I get amen from? No, that's fine. Um, my wife and I have spent hours and hours and hours trying to teach my two-year-old to say, I love you. I thought he said it the other day, I, but I think it was yellow. I don't think it was I love you. I think it was actually yellow. <laughs> but you know what he has learned without me teaching him any of this? Me and Carrie Jane have not spent one second of his 23 months alive teaching him these words. But you know what he figured out on his own? No and mine. We are a deeply broken people where that is the natural default position of people. Unless you think we don't, we're, oh, well, that's just, like we grow out of it and it gets better. Have you ever watched the news? We had a double homicide in our city this week. Not Chicago, not Compton, Norman, Oklahoma. A mile from here. Now, the odds are, thankfully, you're probably not guilty of murder. But I think we all know that's not the same thing as being innocent. We've all fallen short of God's standard, right? And I think if, in a serious moment of reflection, hey, let's, let's go ahead and just leave God's standard out of it. Like, whatever you standard you hold yourself to, you're not going to live up to, right? We can't live up to our own expectations, much less God's perfect, holy, righteous standard. This, this is a pass-fail thing, okay? God doesn't require you to be good. He requires you to be perfect, right? So... Who among us can stand under that divine microscope and be like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And listen, just as a side note, if you are generally under the impression that you are perfect or closer to being perfect than everyone else, that's an especially dangerous sin called pride. And just so you know, nobody likes you. So chapters 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul is kind of acting like, like a spiritual doctor, okay? And like any decent physician, the most important and loving thing that he can do is to provide an accurate diagnosis of our disease. Right? And so he, he explains that disease this way. He says, 
Listen, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And we fell in love with finite created things instead of the infinite creator of those things. Right? And because of that, it, it ruined the world. Um, and we went from being children of God to enemies of God. And because God is, is like, a, like, a, like a really honorable and really respectable judge, he just, can't, he just can't look the other way. He just can't sweep it under the rug. Like he, he values justice too much for that. So that he, he has to deal with this sin some way. He has, there has to be punishment. So that's where we find ourselves. Um, with the spiritual reality that we are enemies of God and uh, we earned it. Nobody got a raw deal. No one can plead ignorance. We earned it. That's, that's about, that's a, it's appropriate. We had that coming. So if this is your first exposure to Romans or the Bible or church, you're probably thinking this is the most pessimistic bummer of a sermon I've ever heard. Um, this Apostle Paul guy really knows how to suck the fun out of a room. Uh, and you're probably right. Paul strikes me as a really intense dude. Um, but he's about to start talking about Jesus. Romans 3:23 through 26 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, so chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 basically say this. It's, it's only when you understand the severity of the disease that you can really appreciate the greatness of the cure. That's what he's talking about as we get into chapter 5. All right? So let's read. Uh, well, tell you what. Let's pray, and then let's read chapter 5, all right? Father, uh, send the Spirit, and uh, would you anoint this time, and would you, um, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear exactly what we need this morning? God, we love you. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. All right. So Romans 5, and uh, I'll read 1 through 11, okay? <clears throat> Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and then that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All right, so I, I, think, I think Paul has two goals in this passage. The first is to further explain the nature of the gospel. All right, and, and for as much as we talk about it here, and I, I think we do talk about the gospel here well. Can't say that about every church, but we talk about the gospel a lot here. I'm convinced that it's actually better than what we give it credit for. Because at some level, we're all still unbelievers, right? We all have that voice in our head that says, I mean, surely the good news is not that good, right? There's got to be some sort of loophole. There's got to be some, some fine print that I missed somewhere. Surely it's not that good. But verse 1 insists that we have peace with God. All right, so, so, so we rebelled. God declared war on us, and in his righteous anger was going to unleash all of his holy wrath on us. But now there's peace. Now there's peace. And not because we got our act together not because we cleaned ourselves up, and it's not because God changed his mind. We have peace through Jesus. Jesus absorbed all of the wrath that was meant for us. All the punishment, all the shame, all the condemnation, all the hatred got emptied on him at the cross got emptied on him now by definition that means there is none left for us there's no more condemnation for us it got emptied on jesus that's really good can i have will someone please say amen like that that's really that's really good news okay i mean god loves you so much that he would rather see his perfect righteous son tortured and executed rather than to lose you. Here's the crazy, that's not the best part. That's not even the best part. Jesus' life and death ended the war, okay? There, there is, that act on the cross brought us peace. And because of that, our slate has been wiped clean, Okay? That is a theologically accurate statement. Our slate is, in fact, clean. 
It's a, that is an accurate statement, but it is not a complete statement. And I'm convinced this is where most of us live with an incomplete gospel. And functioning out of an incomplete gospel is not going to lead you to freedom and joy. It can't. I think functionally, most of us are really, truly, genuinely grateful for our forgiveness. I really, I, I believe that. I think we are deeply grateful for our forgiveness. But our lives reflect that we're, it's like we, we're pardoned criminals that are on probation. I mean, it, yes, we're, we're free and we're forgiven, but we're well aware of our long rap sheet and we know that the next mistake is going to get the book thrown at us. I think that's where most of us functionally live. On top of that, when you become a believer, you have this expectation that you're supposed to be good now, but you still have this temper, you still have these addictions, right? And then you got guys like me on stage talking about how now you got to be a missionary to your neighbors and have little to no idea what that means. And so there's, there's this weight that you carry around with you of like, well, I mean, Christianity, I mean, peace is better than condemnation, so I, that, that's good, but I'm not, it's not like I exactly walk around hopeful. It's Christianity for most of us. If we had honest Christian bumper stickers, I think that's what would be on our car. Christianity, it's better than the alternative, but not exactly hopeful. That's, that's what most of us live like. It's not what Christianity is. That's not the gospel. All right, look at, look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more than that now we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. Yes, you are forgiven. Yes, you are at peace of God. In addition, you're reconciled. All right? You did not just get upgraded from condemned to neutral. Right? That's not, that's not what happened. You're reconciled. You are back to your original position as a beloved child of God. You're all the way back. You're not part of the way back. He loves you. He is a jealous father. He does not like at all that you run to different parents. He wants you for himself. He is jealous for you. When the father sees you, he doesn't see your past he sees all the perfection and righteousness that Jesus gave to you. So let me be as clear as possible, all right? The gospel is not you are forgiven and now you are an employee on a very short leash. That is not the gospel. The gospel 
is that what Jesus did on the cross was powerful enough to lock you into a family that God will not let go of you no matter what. There are no circumstances, there are no conditions by which you will be released from the love of God. There are no conditions. There are no circumstances. That is what unconditional love means. There are no conditions by which he will quit loving you. I use that word conditions and circumstances intentionally because I believe that's Paul's second goal of this passage. The total forgiveness and full reconciliation of the gospel is not a theory that is to be studied in a lab. It is an identity to be lived out of during all the junk of life. All the pain, all the mess, all the grimy, gross stuff, that's where the gospel exists. It's part of the gospel. Imperfection and need is part of the gospel. Romans 5, 3, 3 through 6, Paul says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul lays out this progression of suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. And I think put, put another way, this is saying suffering stretches us so that our hope becomes authentic, not theoretical. All the crappy parts of life. Cancer and miscarriages and breakups and job losses somehow are necessary in order to build us into becoming what God wants us to be. The frustrating part about this is that this passage in no way explains why. This doesn't explain your pain. Uh, it doesn't answer any of the why questions. I, I wish it did, but it just flat doesn't. But what it does say is that your pain and your suffering is not meaningless. It's not random. It's not unchecked. This passage means that your pain matters. It's going towards something. It is producing something good. There's this, uh, there's this really dark movie that um, I'm sure none of you have seen because you're all uh, Christians. But um, It's called Fight Club. And um, 
it's not one you want to recommend to your mom. But um, anyway, it's a, it's a bunch of dudes, and they're kind of stuck in dead-end jobs, and they don't really have any purpose. They don't have any kind of great cause in their lives. So like you do, they start these underground boxing clubs. And uh, it may or may not kind of morph into a terrorist organization by the end of the movie. But again, it's not mom-appropriate, but... Um, there, there's a movie in this line. I'm, I'm actually making a point here. Um, there, there's a movie in this line that has stuck with me um, for 10, 15 years. Okay? Um, uh, they're, they're describing one of these dudes, and um, <clears throat> he says, before Fight Club, this guy was a wad of cookie dough. But after a few weeks, he was carved out of wood. I think that's what Paul's saying about Christians. That suffering takes us from wads of cookie dough and carves us out of wood. Because the simple truth is this. Hope is not fostered in the absence of pain. Hope is legitimized by pain. So as counterintuitive as it seems and as unpleasant as it is, your suffering is carving you into the person that you simply couldn't otherwise be. So listen, if, if you're in the middle of suffering, and this is not a theoretical passage for you, this is this is today for you. He's with you. He's with you. He's with you. He's with you. He has not forgotten about you. Your pain and your suffering is not an indication of his absence. It's not. He is doing something in you and with your circumstances right now. Listen, the reason I can stand up here in front of people who I know have chemo appointments next week and people I know have buried people last month is because of the gospel. Because 2,000 years ago, the perfect son of God, the savior of mankind, the guy who stood up in front of God's people and said that he was here to heal the sick and feed the poor and set the captives free, that guy who was the only hope that we had, he was murdered. And they mocked him, and they tortured him, and they executed him. And the only perfect person who's ever walked the world, the only one who gave us an actual hope, was swallowed up in a tomb 
and what appeared on the surface to be this storm of evil and chaos was actually laying the groundwork for the most important act of love in the history of the world. Don't lose hope, family. Don't lose hope. If he didn't abandon us then, he's not going to abandon us now. Listen, the storm is real. The storm is real. But so is our anchor. He's with us. He's with us. He's with us. The storm is not an indication that he's gone. Our anchor is stronger than the storm. I, uh, I don't know. Um, either either we're going to be the people that stand in the middle of a storm and declare that there's this hope or we don't have any credibility. It's not a matter of is the storm coming or is it, the storm's coming? But we have an anchor. Okay. And let that be our witness to Norman. Right? We're not people immune from storms. We're people that have an anchor in a storm. All right? Let's pray. Father, I... Uh, I thank you for passages like this that um, that don't sugarcoat uh, reality, that don't um, minimize our pain, but that um, maximize our hope and uh, I pray that uh, specifically for those uh, in our family that are in the middle of trials and in the middle of suffering. Uh, that you would be gracious to them. And uh, may, may you be uh, extra sweet to these people uh, during these seasons. And, and with that, be our apologetic uh, to our neighbors. God, we love you. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. So uh, the night... Before Jesus was to be executed, uh, he was with his disciples and they were having dinner together and he took some bread and he tore it and he said, this is, this is my body broken for you. And in some, in some way, every week when we take communion, there's this understanding that, that there's a certain amount of suffering that has to happen in order to bring us peace. And so when we take communion, 
We celebrate that. Millions of people all over the world are going to do this today. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is my my blood that has been shed for you. Once again, emphasizing, I had to be crushed in order for you to be freed. This is a very violent deal. But so is your pain, right? This, this authenticates our faith. We don't, have a, we don't have academic gospel. We don't have a theoretical gospel. We have a tangible, actual gospel. And he wasn't above pain. He was actually torn so that you and I can be saved. So we have three stations. We have one in the back and two up here. Um, so let's just take a moment and pause to reflect on whatever your situation is. But be encouraged that whatever you're going through, it is not darker than that night 2,000 years ago. We don't have to wait till Easter to find hope in resurrection, right? He didn't stay in the tomb. So we have hope. He's bigger than cancer. He's bigger than divorce. Okay? Communion is a tangible way to remember that. So when you're ready, come and receive communion.